Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. You are Locked On Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. This is a continuation of the Locked On podcast's position week, so we're going position by position every single day. Today is the shooting guards, and I wanted to have on Sam Vecini, who's an NBA draft expert and NBA writer at large, and why I want to have him on is because he's really knowledgeable about two of the important players in this mix. So we start with Clay Thompson, as you have to, starting with him, and then go into Ian Clark, Patrick McCaw, Elliot Williams, who's a summer camp invitee, but he has a, a large guarantee, so he's important to talk about, and then Cameron Jones, who is a, a straight camp invitee, and then he also talks a little bit about Elgin Cook because he couldn't help himself, so Sam's a, a draft expert, and it's a lot of fun to have him talk about that group of guys, and he chose this group for a specific reason, but I'll let him explain that in the piece. We talked for about 45 minutes. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, as always, Danny, uh, you know you can always reach out and... I am happy to chat, and I'm sure this will go in a variety of different directions. By the end, we might be talking about the Emmys. Who knows? We, we might be. Uh, so we're doing these position things, and you specifically wanted to do the shooting guards, and I, I'm liking for these to start at the top, and that's Clay Thompson. I think you wanted to start this with a question for me. Yeah, I don't really know what to feel about Clay Thompson within like the hierarchy of the elite, elite NBA players, because like... On one hand, he does so many different things so well. Like, he is obviously one of the best NBA shooters ever, especially in catch-and-shoot situations. Um, he's a really good defender, especially on uh, smaller point guards, and you can throw him one through three, and he'll be okay at the very least. Um, but definitely has a little bit more success, I think, guarding uh, you know more lead-type ball handlers. Um, but he's also so limited just because he can't create as well as other elite players can. Like you look at him versus someone like a Jimmy Butler and they're so different, even though they play the same, the same position that like, I I struggle to see which one I would rather have, you know, like if you were offering me one for one and they have relatively, you know, like for like contracts. So I think it's, uh, you know, kind of like an interesting question, but like, what would you do there? Like, do you, you know, make the move for Jimmy Butler and just say, yeah, I mean, Stefan Durant can, you know, do everything that we need in terms of spacing the floor and we'll just create the best defense ever with uh, Jimmy Butler and, uh, you know, Draymond Green switching everything and becoming superstars on that end. Uh, Or do you just continue to take the status quo with Clay and allow him to take some of the heat off of Curry? I'd probably say I'd take Clay for the Warriors, but for like 90 other teams or, you know, maybe 90% of the other teams in the league, I think that Jimmy Butler's ability to create in the pick and roll is probably a little bit more valuable. So it's really hard for me to kind of decipher where I think he should be, you know? You hit on it pretty well at the end, and the primary issue is that Clay is perfect for this team. Mm-hmm. And 
there aren't many teams that can afford him as really a luxury. And Clay is spectacular at what he does well. He's a great catch-and-shoot guy, and that is amplified not only by him being effective in those circumstances, but by having such a quick release. And so what that means is that you have to keep the player who is on him incredibly close. So even when he is not involved in the primary action of the play... He still does a beautiful job of impacting the defense. Yeah. In the 2015 finals, it was even more notable when Curry was 100% that the that in, instead of really going four on three, the Cavs were going three on two because whoever they put on Clay was just not leaving him. So that is a huge benefit. He's also a good defender and a versatile defender, which is nice. And the ability to slide to ones is more valuable for the Warriors because then they can, you know, take a little bit of the pressure off of Curry when they want to. But he's more limited, I think, than people really focus on in Mm -hmm. a lot of the other aspects of basketball. He is not a rebounder. His passing is shaky and it's terrible in transition for the most part. There's a running joke among the Warriors media corps about how Clay never passes to Steph in transition, and it's it's. I think it's more that he doesn't see him than that he's unwilling yeah. or something crazy like that. So those I'll, things... I'll say this too about you know Clay's passing ability. He's not a guy that's going to create looks for others necessarily, but he does a good job of keeping the ball moving too. Like he's not sure. made to make the extra pass, and most of the time it's the right extra pass. Like he's not a guy that's going to turn the ball over. It's just that his vision is very limited. Yeah, and his dribbling has gotten better. I think that's important. You know, it used to be a big limitation. Like, I think earlier in his career, you could have said that he's a souped-up version of, like, Danny Green offensively. You know, Danny Green can't dribble, but is great defensively and can hit open yeah. shots. Clay's better than that, but yeah. that's kind of what the archetype was. And then now he's become more than that offensively, but he hasn't become more than that in a way that is super valuable. I mean, he scored 24 a game against the Thunder in the Western Conference semifinals in a series that Curry was, you know, out or limited for some of those games. And he blew up against Portland where he had 31. But what's hard about that is that Portland doesn't really have a guy to defend him. So, you mm-hmm. know, they could, they could throw, you know, Aminu or Harkless over, but, you know, they have all sorts of other cascading problems. So Clay would be, he'd be good in a larger role, but he wouldn't be as great. I mean, he, he did really impress me. He was better in the non-Curry playoff games than I ever expected. And Mm -hmm. that really did raise his profile in that circumstance. But it's hard to separate out a guy who is in a perfect circumstance. And there are a few other guys like this, like a lot of the guys on the Spurs, where it is really hard to say, you know, what would have happened there and, and how they would be. But it's, yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, I think that Clay deserves a lot of credit for improving as a pro. Like, he hasn't improved as markedly as Draymond and Steph have, you know, like where you can see so much growth in their games, but it really does help. And it surprises me, I guess it's maybe just what they want him to do, that he's such a shaky rebounder because it's it's not something that intuitively you would think that he would be bad at. Mm-hmm. It's also yeah, I mean, not super important since he's a two. But yeah. it it helps. I mean, it helps when anybody can do it. And he would only defensive rebound because he's never going to be close enough to the basket to offensive rebound. Right. And you bring up the idea of improvement with Clay. I think that uh, you mentioned that like they aren't as tangible as the improvements as Steph and Draymond, and that's probably right. But like you look at the way that he has quickened that release. Like I've uh, you know on Twitter just gone back and looked at the way that Clay used to shoot at Washington State. He used to bring the ball down and then up and then shoot it. 
you know, and it was not a slow release necessarily, but it was a very average timed release. He's gone from that to becoming like the quickest release in the NBA, other than maybe Steph. And that's almost impossible, I feel like. Like the improvement from good to great is always a more difficult improvement from below average to good, in my opinion. And Clay has kind of done that. He's become a great release in terms or he's ha- uh, developed a great release in terms of the way he shoots the basketball and you know the, that kind of totally changes the way that the Warriors run offense you're right and I think that that's what makes him such a valuable like third offensive piece here because like you said they're going to be able to go three on two with just putting Clay Thompson in the corner and nobody's ever going to be able to leave him because it's you know an average expected points per possession of you know maybe 1.4 1.5 if you leave him open in that corner and that's nothing that any NBA team can afford to do and you bring up the ball handling which you know like you said it's very much improved like those first couple years in Golden State he couldn't attack a closeout to save his life Um, it, it was really difficult and I think that part of it is that obviously NBA players that are guarding him have to close out a little bit harder now and that gets them a little bit more out of control but Another part of it absolutely is that he has just genuinely improved his handle and the ability to drive a straight line and get to the rim. And his size really helps there. He's become a bit more powerful in terms of taking contact when getting to the rim and, you know, getting into that mid-range area. So I think that, you know, the improvements in Clay's game, plus the defense, obviously, uh, everyone improves defensively once you get to the NBA just because you have to. But he's become a legitimate above-average defender, and that's absolutely worth mentioning i mean the improvements that he's made i don't think have gone unnoticed either they may not be as as you know obvious to the naked eye like draymond becoming uh you know just this incredible defensive stopper after being you know something of defensive liability liability in college um you know that that's a improvement that is just you know impossible to make basically for any other nba player um, but Clay's, I think, definitely deserve mention and deserve notice. For sure. And one thing I will note that one a thing that he could improve, which isn't as much even a skill development, because I think that's less realistic than the alternative, is that every once in a while he throws a pass that's way too ambitious. It's just like something, it's like <laughs> it's like a, a tool he doesn't have in his toolbox. He would do it a lot to Andrew Bogut, where he'd like do a weird bounce pass or something, or like try to get to his opposite shoulder. It's like, okay, you can't do that. And so if he simplified that a little bit, it would help too because he can sometimes he puts teammates in bad positions and it's a very small thing but just being more within yourself because Clay also deserves a lot of credit for being having one of the biggest adjustments in terms of when Kerr came in with shot expectations because Clay under Mark Jackson was basically like you know he's kind of like if it's an okay look you might as well shoot it you're amazing you know he would do back downs he would if it, if the guy was contesting a little bit closer he would do that partially because he couldn't attack the closeout as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And it, he talked with, we talked about it at the time, that it took him a while to realize we can get better shots than this. Yeah. And that was a, a sea change for the rest of the team as well, because Clay can annihilate great looks. And once he learned that he could get them more reliably than, than he was, yeah. it, that is a big part of what changed this offense from being really good and second in the league to dominating last year. And that is a hard thing to change. It's actually, I just had a piece go up on The Athletic this morning about how that shift is going to happen for Kevin Durant. 
and we'll see how how it how it does. But Clay is a good template for just understanding where your role in the offense is going to change as everything gets better. And of course, they're going to have to deal with a big adjustment this year too. Yeah, no, I, I think that the idea of Durant, and I'm sure this might not be something you want to get into in this podcast. We'll probably wait for the next one for Durant. But like the idea of you know how he used to kind of take the best look that he could get in Oklahoma City. And it was either him creating it or Russ creating it for him or like, you know, vice versa. Cause those were, you know, the two biggest pieces of their offense. Um, it is going to be an adjustment early for Durant, for sure. I'm going to be fascinated to see how that works because you can even kind of see it sometimes in like team USA where he's definitely better about, you know, waiting for an open look. But occasionally he will kind of go off script and just be like, okay, I'm getting a shot here and going for it. And that's not something that uh, is within the uh, Golden State ethos. So, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting point. It's a really interesting ideal that uh, it's going to take some time for the for the Warriors. That's why, you know, you and I have talked about this. You're you do think that, you know, 74 is in play for the Warriors this year. I think that it's going to take a little bit of time, not like the 20 or 25 games it took the heat to adjust whenever they had uh, LeBron James for the first time with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch, just because the pieces fit a little bit better here. But I do think that there's going to be like that, you know, 12 game adjustment period where maybe they lose four and that might be enough to set it back from 74. Yeah. I, I frame it for myself as that it's in play, but very unlikely. It's just that yeah. when you have a team with this high a ceiling, I don't want to write anything off. And you know, sure. so maybe, maybe cause I, I think that they're good enough that they can win a ton of games in the adjustment period. You know, like that, that's yeah. kind of the nature of it is that they, they'll start very good and they'll get a lot better. And so I haven't really broken down the schedule too much. That is something I'd like to do on the show sometimes, but I haven't, I'm not going to do it right now, but Let's move on to Ian Clark. Part of the re- the other part of the reason you wanted to do this is because of Mr. Ian Clark. I love Ian Clark. Ian Clark is an NBA player to me for sure. Like, I mean, I think he could be an NBA rotation player in the style of like Patty Mills or uh, something like that. Like those, you know, smaller ish. Because Ian's like six four or so. Um, those smaller ish combo guards that you know can do some secondary ball handling, but really probably belong off ball more than anything. Um, Ian Clark is an awesome three-point shooter, even though his NBA stats haven't really belied that yet. You know, he's only taken like 140 three-pointers in his career, I think. And he's only making them at like, you know, something like 36 or so percent. But I think he can be like a 40 percent, 38 to 40 percent three-point shooter that also brings a lot of energy defensively. He was a two-time uh, Ohio Valley is the conference that Belmont was in where he went to school. Two-time Ohio Valley Defensive Player of the Year. You watch him come in, he's always super energetic, uh, always really hounds people both on and off the ball. So, you know, to me, that guy is an NBA player, especially when you take into account the secondary ball handling ability that he can do. Um, you know, maybe not with Golden State necessarily because they're just so loaded. But, you know, I think that he is a better player than Patrick McCaw right now. And a lot of people are just assuming that McCaw is going to kind of step in and just, you know, take minutes immediately. And I'm not quite there yet on that. So I like that we're talking about 
Clark right after that discussion about Clay and and Durant and their role in the offense because I think that's what can really kick Clark into another gear in terms of efficiency is just getting that place within the Warrior system because right. when he gets clean looks he's unbelievable. Yeah. He's a really good open shot taker, a great open shot maker, and he's good enough as you said at creating for himself. Those, you know, those are good in an ideal world, those are the worst looks that you get, you know, are the ones that you create for yourself. And when you're on the second unit, that happens, you know, like there's not really any way, any way else to frame it. But if he can kind of take out some of the most aggressive, aggressive looks that he does, this was even true. It's great that he has basically infinite confidence because like he did that against the Rockets, even even though he was playing with better teammates than he usually does. And it worked, you know, like there are games that it really works. And so if he can strike a better balance in terms of all that, he can do it. And I agree with you defensively. Like He has the tools to be a better defender. And having somebody who can handle ones and twos at least a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. I think he's way better defending ones than twos for the most part. For sure. And that works with Livingston, you know, if he's yep. going to play with, with Sean. And it also works with Clay. And so you can balance that out a little bit. And one of the big questions for Kerr this year is will he kind of intermix players a little bit more or a little bit less? Like, how's he going to do that? And Clark is a good test piece because he can fit with a lot of these different guys. And you're probably right that he's that he's better than McCaw right now. I mean, I, I think that my premise with that is that McCaw can be good enough to take time, but Clark's going to have to, you know, disappoint in a way to do that. Like, Clark is the favorite for that backup two spot, especially because he gets to play with Livingston, who has the size to do some different stuff. And generally speaking backup twos are probably an, a more logical cover for Livingston than backup ones. It depends on the team, you know, like some teams sure. have those bigger, slow, like more of like the Grievous Vasquez point guards. Those are fine for him. But if it's, you know, one of those water bug type guys, like yeah. that's, that's probably better for Ian. And he fits well with that. And you could be right that depending on what Clark wants, I've never talked with him about this. He wouldn't even tell me, but he might be better suited in terms of like counting stats and everything else after this season going to another team if he can really show some some imprint but he could also really enjoy this role if you know if that's what yeah. happens and they will have early <clears throat> bird rights on him after this year assuming the structure stays basically the same that should be enough money to pay him so he he'll he'll have to fight for his place in the league but i think he he deserves it and what one of the big questions with him, and this is true, you alluded to it before, is when you have a guy who's a, a, a really good, who's a very good shooter, and d- is worse, let's say, on that end than you expect early in their career. At a certain point, you start to have to believe the evidence that you have in front of you. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's Clark this year. You know, it's like I, I agree with you that he has the talent to be a forty percent or you know high thirties three point shooter. But if he has another season, you know, he's been at 35 essentially his entire NBA career. Yeah. If if he stays around there at this point, then you start to believe it because he's 25 now, he'll turn 26 during the season. But so that's why it can be a defining thing. Is like if if you even if it's just inklings, it doesn't have to be, oh, now he's a 40% guy, but if he has those more of those games, then you can start to say, okay, this is this is who he could be. Yeah, I mean, here's what I'll say. I've pulled up his synergy numbers. <clears throat> From this year, I mean, he's 85th percentile on catch and shoot, uh, 80th percentile off the dribble in terms of jump shooting. Like, those are elite-ish numbers. I mean, they come on, you know, 100 jump shots. But, like, those are really strong numbers and highly above average numbers um, that kind of go against almost 
his statistics like officially, you know, like he's only a 36% shooter last year, but I, I do believe in the shot. I've always believed in the shot. You know, he shot, uh, you know, I'm pulling up the numbers now in terms of what he shot at Belmont. He shot over 40% from three every single season of his career. He started every single game of his career, I believe. So you're talking, you know, high, high level of attempts, 800 attempts, 42% from three during college. I like to think that that is a larger sample and more indicative of his talent level than uh, the 145 in the NBA. Uh, and plus, you've mentioned McCon. We can kind of slide this into a discussion about McCon now. Uh, the reason that I think that Clark is probably a little bit better than McCaw right now is, A, you know, one of them is 25 years old. One of them is 20 years old. That's just kind of a uh, fact of the matter in terms of age and development curves that Clark is going to be more likely to handle minutes this year, I think, pure and simple. Uh, McCaw is probably a more skilled player overall, and there's a reason that they gave him a two-year guaranteed deal and i think that he's going to provide value for them on that deal i think that wouldn't be surprising to me at all if he played like you know 60 games and played you know 600 minutes like ian clark did this year and became a valuable role player uh in some capacity but there are still some problems with mccaw in terms of i don't think he's going to be able to really defend anybody this year he's still super skinny uh, and really wasn't all that great of a defender he was a playmaker in the way that he would cause steals and get into passing lanes at UNLV, but he wasn't necessarily a guy that you could trust to throw on a man and stop him in the half quarter, throw on a man and you know stop him from getting out and transition a little bit better. Um, and plus, the shot is still questionable to me. I know that he had a nice summer league, but uh, the shot is still just not where it needs to be. I think it'll get there. I think he could not have gotten to a better place than Golden State for his skill set. But having said that, it's still just going to take a little bit of time. Maybe by you know March or February, late February, he's ready to come in and be a valuable piece for them that plays ten minutes a game. But I'm not like super super sold on this either. Immediately, right off the bat, you know, if you were making me kind of slot in guys for a draft board for Golden State, he probably would have been in my top twenty for them even though I had him at like 35 or 36 on my overall board, because I think there were a lot of situations where he could have failed. But Golden State is the exact situation to get the most out of his talent, and I just think it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. Yeah, that that's certainly a, a measure take, and I, I agree with it for the most part. McCaw is more of a long-term in- interest for me than a short-term one, and what's hard in a circumstance like this is that so much of the information that will make the decision is stuff that we won't have access to, more specifically meaning practice in the weight room. You know, like, that's really sure. what, what will make the difference with these guys. I mean, in terms of on the court, Clark shooting is important. He's, I, I feel at this point, he's a better playmaker for himself and others, which yep. can be important. We don't know exactly how they're going to manage their second units, but there also is the concept of a long-term investment. McCaw signed yep. a two-year guaranteed deal. He will be a restricted free agent after that. They they bought the pick with a, a meaningful amount of money. I think it was about $2 million. So, you know, you have all that kind of stuff that, that feeds into it. Also, McCaw... If he can move toward, like, if he can follow the, if you want to call it the Warriors path for a lot of their guys of, you know, getting closer to the top end of his possibilities curve, let's call it. Yeah. That's a huge piece for the Warriors because he's 6'7", 6'8", has a 6'10", wingspan, so he's big for the two. If he could get a little bit thicker, he could defend some threes, and that is a really nice piece for the Warriors to have, especially considering he's, 
you know, you don't need as much shot creation on this team as, as some other teams do, assuming that Livingston comes back after this year. So he can be active defensively. You know, you can do all that kind of stuff. And McCaw, you know, he, he's not as good a shooter as Ian Clark. Very few people are. But he did make 36% of his threes both years at UNLV. He made over 70% of his free throws, 77% his sophomore year, which is mm-hmm. quite good. So, you know, there <laughs> is some project, there's some projectability to his shot. So that's really, that's informative and potentially yep. important. So it will take a little bit of time unless Mike Schmitz is right and he just sets the world on fire because Mike Schmitz has been on McCaw for a long time. But it will be a healthy competition for both of them. And there's also the possibility, depending on how they define everything, that both of them could have enough minutes. That could be either through Clark not really being a garbage time guy and having so McCaw it gets gets the minutes then and this Warriors team will have a lot of garbage time. Like that is just yeah. a fact of the matter. The other part is if they if, if Kerr really likes both of them, they could fiddle around with them being the one and the two or them being the two and the three. You know, like it doesn't have to be that rigid when you're when you're not defending the other team's best players. You know, like that's something that we could see in the league more broadly. Dallas does this actually with playing two point guards. You know, like Dallas a lot of times on their second unit they realize that it's not that big a deal to have a point guard guarding a backup two. And so they just yeah. have two point guards. And so the Warriors could do the same thing with having a two and a three. Like if they want to start dabbling more with Andre Guadalla playing with Durant and the starters, you know, going going to that sort of a setup, whether that be Draymond at center or even, you know, whatever they want to do, they could handle that by playing McCaw and Clark at the two and the three. Or, you know, having somebody else work out. So I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work. It is a little bit less rigid. But the idea of Clark holding the spot for this year unless McCaw takes it is probably the most reasonable interpretation, assuming they both stay healthy. Yeah, I I think that that's pretty much hitting the nail on the head. Uh, Yeah, like I said, um, McCaw is a perfect fit developmentally for this team. And, you know, long term, that's a great piece for them to have, especially whenever you do have the Sean Livingston situation coming up next summer. You're going to have the Andre Iguodala situation coming up next summer, too. And while those two aren't necessarily like for like pieces, you know, it's nice to have the flexibility of a guy on a minimum scale deal uh, whenever you have Andre Iguodala coming up. One quick conceptual question for you. So McCaw is right on that borderline, assuming Clark takes the two guard spot. He's right on that borderline of could be in the NBA, could be in the D-League. How would you strike that balance with somebody like him, considering that he could get garbage time minutes, like, you know, let's say eight minutes in a given game, as opposed to playing a full, you know, 30 or so in Santa Cruz? Yeah, so the Warriors just kind of break that model, right? Because they're going to probably blow out so many teams this year that it actually might be worthwhile for him to be up and get game time. But then again, like, is it worth him getting, you know, non-competitive game time in the NBA versus, you know, what you would consider, you know, maybe more high leverage minutes in the D league with guys who are really playing, you know, fully all out all the time. It's a really tough call. Cause you know, we just haven't seen a team like this golden state team, uh, you know, really in history, given the fact that they were the best team ever in the regular season last year and just added like the third best player in the NBA, in my opinion. So like, I am not entirely sure how to judge this in terms of how you want to go about developing a guy. Typically 
I am someone who says just send them to the D League and have them get minutes and make sure that you know they're playing 30 minutes a game if you're going to have them there. If you're not going to have them playing at least 20 minutes a game, just have them with the NBA team. Um, but I do tend to fall on the side of I think it's valuable for these guys to go to the D League and get the minutes against higher leverage competition because the D League is getting stronger. Um, it's just going to be different with the Warriors this year because you're right. He might be able to get like 10 minutes a game and garbage time as the Warriors try and keep Durant and Curry and Clay fresh for the uh, you know upcoming postseason, which is where their tale is really going to be told. The answer might be just threading the needle and kind of doing both. So yeah, I think the, it is. The big question will be practices. You know, like if he can get a spot where he's actually getting real reps in and practice against players, you know, the NBA teams don't actually practice that much. So yeah. you can kind of balance that out. And if I were the Warriors, what I would do is I would have a, you know, have somebody on the payroll whose, jo- whose job it is to drive Patrick McCaw to whichever place he needs to be that day and just make sure that, that you have that scheduled and have that lined up and travel with both complicates it you know because will Mm -hmm. he take road trips and the way that i would do that is just kind of assessing at the beginning of it you know where is it going to do and that's a little bit hard for him just to get an equilibrium but getting the reps are is a more important thing so that that would be the balance and i don't support that for most guys usually i would lean more towards one way or the other but Mm -hmm. santa cruz isn't that far you know i'd say it's about an hour and a half two hours and the days are separate enough that you can kind of figure it out so that might be the way to do it. And when a guy's, you know, going to be playing 10 minutes max, probably, if he's in the NBA, it's not like you have to worry about cumulative fatigue as much. You know, this isn't a circumstance where he's playing 30 one day and then 30 the next day or anything like that. And you yeah. can manage those sort of a thing. Let's part, of this, part of this with McCaw, too, is, though, real quick, is sure. how much do you trust your uh, – weight training staff in Santa Cruz versus how much you trust it uh, with Golden State because weight training for him is going to be a very important part of his development because he is so skinny. So if you trust your weight weight training staff down in Santa Cruz just as much as you trust those guys in Golden State or at least close to as much, I think there might be a little bit more utility in sending him down. But uh, if you know this just comes from me not being super uh, super knowledgeable on that particular aspect of Santa Cruz's operation. Um, so, you know, if they don't really trust those guys, it might be more valuable for Makata kind of spend the year in Golden State. And the other factor in all of this is that if Damian Jones is out for an extended period of time, then they have that kind of active roster spot available. You right. know, they also could just keep him in the D-League more, more regularly. They can do whatever I, they want. I would probably keep him in the D-League more than I would keep McCaw in the D-League. Yeah, I, w- I would do the there. same. And so what that does is it open, pretty much opens up a roster spot unless you know unless everybody's healthy and you really don't need McCaw so that you can kind of have him around more. And the other reason why I would lean more towards having McCaw like, basically make the assumption that he's with the NBA team but have him go to the to the the Santa Cruz Warriors at some points, is that one of the biggest adjustments that NBA players go through is getting used to the travel and the schedule. Yeah. And if you can do that in a circumstance where you're not asking a lot from them physically, so basically they can use a lot of their mental energy to make the adjustment, then mm-hmm. that sets things up better for subsequent seasons. And so if they can do that with him, it, it can be really useful because I've talked with a lot of players about that. And, you know, like even somebody like, I think it was Tim Hardaway Jr. Like, or there were players like that who who their dad played in the league. You know, like who it's not that the structure isn't that different, except the travel's gotten way better in yeah. terms of 
you know, private planes and all that sort of thing, that it's still an adjustment for those type of people. So, like, if, if what you've done is you've played a couple of years of college ball, like, it's a huge, huge change. Mm-hmm. And so if they can give him most of that experience, you know, make it, let's say, 75% of it, then that makes it a lot easier moving forward, even if he's not playing that much. Yeah, like, the comfort level may change, but it's more just about, like, the physical toll it takes on your body. Right. You know, like, it's... Yeah, it's a difficult adjustment for sure for, you know, every player to make, but especially guys that are 20 years old and still have some work to do on their body and, you know, come from what I imagine was a very unstructured situation at UNLV last year. That that seems to follow the historical precedent. Yes. So Elliot Williams right now has to be considered the favorite to get that 15th roster spot. His Mm -hmm. story is fascinating. He was drafted in 2010 by the Blazers, kind of fell out of the league, bounced around a little bit, and then was a part of the Santa Cruz Warriors, has some history there. What do you think of him and his chances of making this team? Yeah, Elliot's a guy, again, that I've always really liked, like in the same mold as Ian Clark. Again, I think that Elliot Williams is probably, I don't know that I feel as strongly about him being a rotation player as I do about Ian Clark, but I feel like he's a guy that should be on an NBA roster somewhere for sure. Um, you look at what he's been able to accomplish over the last two years. Uh, you know, like you said, on that Santa Cruz team, he was the playoff MVP that year in 2015, all D league second team, pretty much all those guys can, you know, hold down roster spots in the NBA in the right situation. Uh, then last year, I believe that he was with Santa Cruz for the first part of the year, and then in the second half of the year, he went to Panathinaikos over in Greece and with the EuroLeague. Uh, I think they finished sixth or so in EuroLeague, which is uh, a really high-level accomplishment. He was starting uh, basically every game by the end of it. Uh, those kind of guys are super, super talented. He's a really good athlete, really smart basketball player. Still, you know, the jump shot isn't, exactly what you would hope for from a guy but he's improved it to the point where i think over the last two years in the d league he's been something like a 35 percent three-point shooter um but i don't know that that's going to hold because i don't necessarily know that i trust the shot you know over in greece last year it was something like 25 percent. so it's a really difficult uh judgment there but you know he has all the tools to be an nba player he can create off the dribble he's a good athlete uh you know, the jump shot is at least valuable enough to where you can hope for it. And he's uh, a relatively long guy, rangy, uh, even though he's only like 6'4", 6'5". Uh, he's a pretty decent-sized wingspan. So those kind of guys have value in the NBA, in my opinion. He got a cup of coffee with Memphis last year. Um, I'll, I'll just be interested to see uh, how this goes because, again, like you said, this is a kid that has had you know, hardship after hardship in terms of he went to Duke initially, then had to transfer to Memphis because I believe his mother was, uh, was I don't know if it was cancer or something. She had a uh, some sort of disease where she was uh, in mortal danger in terms of her life. Um, then he tore uh, his ACL, I believe, more than once. Is that right, Danny? I'm trying his... to remember. I, 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 I'm not sure if it was once or twice. It... Yeah, but I mean, he right at the middle of when he was starting to look like a real NBA player, tore up his knee and it took it, took it right, right away from him basically. So um, I, I'm really, he's always a guy that I always really root for. So I hope that he holds down a roster spot. And, you know, last year he was paid really well to go to Panathinaikos. So this isn't a guy that like is, you know, struggling right along, making a living playing basketball. But 
Uh, I'm sure that his overall dream is to play in the NBA and to finally hold down a roster spot in the NBA for the first time, despite entering the league at like 20 and he's 27 now. So yeah, I'll always root for Elliot Williams. And I really do hope that uh, he's able to make the roster. And to explain to people why he's, well, there are a couple of reasons why he's the favorite for it. But one of the big reasons is that the Warriors gave him a partial guarantee of $250,000. And that's a lot more than anybody else has, well, you know, on the roster right now for that 15th spot. And because he makes some sense. You know, we've talked about how the Warriors have a lot of guys that they're interested in at the kind of the one and the two, but they don't have a ton of depth. And also, as we kind of alluded to before, you can kind of slide one of these guys to the three when need be. You know, you can do that. I, I would rather actually have a kind of a three-four for that 15th spot just because they're a little shallower there. Yeah. Especially if Looney isn't all the way back, and we'll have to see with that. So, but Williams is a capable guy. He he showed more in the last like last year, just being able to be a productive part of of, yeah. of a team. You know, actually, really, really good passer. Yes. So so he can do that, and really, you know, you don't when you're thinking about a fifteenth roster spot, it isn't necessarily as much about positional fit or anything like that, because if that need comes in play, you'll probably get an extra roster spot, or maybe you'll make a cut. You're looking for who can become something that we actually can use. And Elliot Williams has the talent to do that. So it makes sense in that direction. Yeah, and, especially if you're not just going to use the spot for a developmental kid. Right, because uh, they, actually... they have those guys on roster anyway, so they don't really need yeah. another guy with that. They would rather have somebody who is capable of contributing. Yep. And, yeah, I mean, I would also open to the possibility of, if they could get a really solid one just in case because Livingston, I talked about this on, on Monday's podcast, Livingston can't really scale up his minutes due to his physical stuff, so you kind of yeah. don't have another guy in that. But if that person isn't available, you know, Elliot can create a little bit and he fits with a lot of the other things that they have. So mm-hmm. he, he makes sense for this team. And we'll talk briefly about, about Cameron Cameron Jones was, he went to Northern Arizona, has bounced around a fair amount, was actually in Santa Cruz for two seasons, but that ended in 2014. And he'll probably be, you know, a training camp guy and then, you know, maybe be on Santa Cruz if that's what he wants. Do you have any strong opinions on him? I don't really. Um, Just seems like a normal training camp body, basically. Um, You know, he was really good player in Big Sky League for, you know, back in 2011, um, definitely a solid professional level basketball player, not really an NBA player to me. He doesn't really have that like one skill that I look at and say, wow, like that, that skill will translate to the NBA. Um, you know, not really much of a jump shooter, uh, not really a guy that is, you know, going to be able to be a shutdown defender necessarily. Um, I think he split last year between Israel and Greece, if I remember correctly, and yep. the year before that, he was in Russia uh, with St. Petersburg. I know that. Um, so it's he's a training camp guy. I would imagine that he'll probably get cut. And depending on the guarantee structure, because uh, I don't really know what that looks like if he got any sort of guaranteed money or if he's just coming in and trying to make the team. Um, you know, sometimes what NBA teams do is they supplement players uh, to stay over here and uh, go to the D-League with a guarantee early in training camp. So, like, I'm trying to think of a really good example of this. Like, Bryn Forbes is a guy who would kill over in Europe. The Spurs gave him, I think, hundred to $125,000 guaranteed uh, to 
stay over here and stay with them uh, in Austin instead of going overseas and going to Europe because uh, they'll cut Bryn Forbes at the end of training camp. But the amount of money that he'll make in the D League, he'll make like 150000 this year. Uh, that's pretty commensurate to what he would make over in Europe. So it makes sense for him to stay uh, over here on this side of the uh, pond. So um, it's probably it'll depend on what the guarantee structure is for Cameron Jones. I don't really know what that is yet. Um, my guess, though, is that He's a guy that could make you know six figures over in Europe. So I mean, and plus he's not been in the D League for two years. I would be surprised that unless the Warriors gave him six figures to come to training camp, and that doesn't seem all that likely to me. Uh, that I would be surprised if he stayed over here. This seems like kind of a just training camp situation. Yeah, I think you're right. Two two quick points. One is that while the D League has gotten a little stronger in the last couple of years. Jones averaged 20 points per game in 56 games for Santa Cruz in 2013-14. Mm-hmm. So, like, and then he, you know, had played, didn't, hasn't played in the NBA since then, has bounced around Europe. And so that kind of gives you an idea of what the kind of difference in, in play is. And then the other point that I wanted to make before we ended the show on Elliot Williams is that, if assuming it's okay with ownership, one huge flexibility benefit that the Warriors have is they're not going to be a luxury tax team this year. Like this yeah. is a team that's not going to do that. So they can afford to spend $250,000 on him or bestow my heart 1 million on Anderson Verjao and cut them if they're not the best player <laughs> because they're not spending that much money on their team. This team is going to be ludicrously profitable. So if I were advising Lakeup and everybody else, I would say it doesn't matter what you have committed to players. It w- tell the coaches, you know what what makes for the best team, and a lot of those kind of fringy guys aren't really long term assets anyway. Like you don't want to cut McCall, you don't want to cut Damian Jones, but with these last couple roster spots, you can be a little bit more aggressive with it than before, and that doesn't necessarily have to be in October. It can also be at the buyout time in February because. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like oh my god if we spend another you know if we spend another prorated million dollars on a guy getting him for the minimum we're not going to have a team anymore you know like we're we're going to be financially insolvent so that gives them a little bit more flexibility than a couple other teams that are right on the fringe I think Memphis is right on the fringe of the luxury tax the Clippers are on the yeah. fringe of the hard cap so that makes it harder for them than it is for the Warriors yeah another thing kind of in this same boat I think that the Warriors signed Elgin Cook right. Yes. So that's a really smart signing to me because I would imagine they're going to give him a decent amount of a guarantee, like a pretty solid one maybe even into six figures to get him to stay in Santa Cruz. Um, that's a kid that I could easily see becoming an NBA player at some point just because he's so athletic. He's six six, um, really, really good defender who can get all the way two through four because he's so strong. Um, that's a tremendous signing to me. Um, and it's surprising to me they didn't go after another one of those guys. Give out like a six-figure guarantee where even if you cut them, you're still not up against the luxury tax anyway. So, uh, And this team is insanely profitable. So getting guys that could be potential role players, you know, three years down the road uh, and getting them in your system in Santa Cruz, I think is tremendously valuable. So I I would like to see them even try and get one more guy in the Elgin Cook mold, but it's nice to see them having gotten one guy like that in the Elgin Cook mode that they can just send down to Santa Cruz and work with them and see if he can become anything. Yeah, because like think about think about like a hundred thousand dollars to get a potential NBA role player that is so minuscule compared to uh, you know what exorbitant salaries on the free agency market is are. 
On top of that, you also have a circumstance where having more talent on your D-League team helps the players that you're trying to evaluate that are probably going to be on your NBA team eventually. You know, having better teammates for Patrick McCaw in Santa Cruz makes it easier to figure out what Patrick McCaw is. Yep. And that's why I would have pushed hard for somebody like Van Vliet, you know, somebody who's a talented point guard. And maybe that's what Pressy ends up being. You know, Pressy ends up being Santa Cruz's lead guard and helps, pa- helps you know, run the offense because a point guard in the D-League can be so pivotal for helping figure out what everybody else is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else you want to talk about either with the other kind of fringy guys on the roster or in general? Or are we good? No, I think we're good, Danny. Okay. Well, thanks for your time. Have a great rest of your day. Absolutely. You too. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to Sam Vicini for taking the time to come on. You can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vicini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. He's a draft expert and a writer at large. So if you're somebody who hires people, you should definitely consider that. And I really loved hearing him talk particularly about Clark and McCaw, two guys that he knows well and that he feels strongly about. And that will be an important part of this Golden State Warriors team. We don't know exactly how it's all going to look, but we know that's going to be important for how things move forward, and McCaw having another guaranteed year looms large in this. I think that will end up allowing him to play a little bit more, but we'll have to see. Hope you enjoyed this, and I'm trying to have guests on as much as possible, though there will be more episodes like the point guard one where it is me talking and working in the process of figuring out if I'm going to publish those notes. People did seem interested in that, and it's something I'd like to do. It's just figuring out an outlet and all that sort of thing. So keep an, keep an eye and ear out for that, and once I know something more definitive, of course I will let you know. You can reach out to me at Danny LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or MBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. And you can also reach out to Locked On Warriors more broadly if you prefer that for whatever reason. That is Locked On Dubs on Twitter, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N-D-U-B-S, because Locked On Warriors is too long. Locked On Warriors at gmail.com and Locked On Warriors on Facebook. You can leave something wherever you like. Again, I will read it. I will respond if I can. And, you know, I'm going to incorporate ideas as we move forward into the into the year in terms of things for for episodes and there will be a lot more to talk about when there are games and post games and pre games and previews and all that sort of thing but those questions that you want answered are always important because if there's a question that you think is pertinent there are probably other people that feel the same way so I'll try to do that and going to try to incorporate some regular features as well and ideally tie it in a little bit with my writing for The Athletic speaking of that just had a new piece come out this morning on Monday about how Kevin Durant could fit in with a stagger and so what a stagger means is you separate out the minutes and so the concept that's kind of bounced around in it is playing Durant a little bit separately at the beginning of the second and fourth quarters away from Curry and Thompson and possibly Draymond Green as well to let him play something a little bit more similar to what he had in Oklahoma City as a safety blanket of sorts a security blanket if you want to call it that and we'll see if Kerr does that he has a lot of options and this team is a challenge from a coaching perspective for a lot of different reasons but that is a big one. It's just making sure that Drain is happy for various reasons. One being that, you know, he's a high profile guy who signed and is a key part of their future. And he is a free agent after this season. So you do want to keep him happy with that. You have a long time to, to make everything work. And so I am an, I'm advocating for something like that, at least to start the season and they can go away from it in time. So thrilled to be a part of the Locked On Podcast Network. You should definitely check out 
whatever ones you're interested, great hosts all around the network. I had four of them on last week. And there's also Locked On NFL, so for those of you who are Bay Area-based and are a Raiders fan or a Niners fan, there are Locked On podcasts for that as well. So you can definitely, you should check those out. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.